Good day. I'm Sharon Pearson, president of Salem City Club. Very happy that you could join us today. We're bringing our 54th season to a close next month. After today's program, we have one remaining program on May 14th. We will end the season with a panel of journalists who will talk about what happened in this year's legislative session. We'll hear from the Oregonians Hillary Board, Connor Radnovich of the Statesman Journal, and Jake Thomas from the Salem Reporter. I expect a lively and interesting discussion. We hope you'll sign up and join us. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. Thank you to our members and our friends who continue to support Salem City Club through membership and donations. We are only able to present programs through the financial help of our supporters and the volunteers who keep the club running. In addition, City Club also depends on the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. They are KMUZ Community Radio, Lugene Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. And now, today's program lead, Jan Margosian, will introduce our speaker. Good morning, Jan. Good morning, Sharon. Thank you very much. Uh, I guess it's good afternoon now, isn't it? I'm very pleased to introduce our speaker for today's program, Oregon's 28th Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan. She is one of the state's three constitutional officers, along with the governor and treasurer. Like President Biden, she just uh, completed her first 100 days in office, facing huge challenges in the areas of redistricting and elections and economic recovery. This afternoon, Secretary Fagan will discuss those challenges and outcomes and her agency's uh, core objectives. Prior to serving as Secretary of State, uh, Fagan, who is a civil rights attorney, worked at Adderwin and later at HKM Employment Attorneys. Uh, she holds a BA degree from Northwest Nazarene University in Idaho and received her JD from Lewis and Clark School of Law in Portland. Uh, Fagan served as a member of the Oregon House of Representatives and as a member of the Oregon uh, Senate. And during that time, uh, she was uh, known as an active proponent of expanding access to the ballot, including helping to pass Oregon's landmark motor voter law and national popular vote and working to strengthen the nation's most successful vote by mail system. A lifelong Oregonian, Secretary Fagan was sworn in as the Secretary of State on January 4th, 2021. Now joining her today is Dr. Paul Gronke, who is a professor of political science at Reed College. In 2005, he established the Early Voting Information Center, an organization that seeks nonpartisan evidence-based solutions to identified problems in election administration, which may or may not include the administration of early voting. Gronke will present survey results commissioned last year by then Secretary of State Bev Clarno that looked at Oregonians' pre- and post-election perceptions of Oregon's elections and the vote-by-mail system. And now, Secretary Fagan. Well, thank you, Jan and Sharon and Salem City Club. It is so great to be with you. 
I will not let the opportunity pass to say that I wish we were in person. It is definitely, I am definitely over uh, the virtual events. I'm sure many of you are. And so I look forward to the day that we are, you know, gather around a table, eating some great lunch food and being able to have this in person. And in the meantime, thank you to Salem City Club and all of your team for making this happen virtually. I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to share with you just some highlights from our first 100 days in office. And uh, for those of you who have not been steeped in the history of the Secretary of State's office over the past few years, I'll just give you a little bit of background. As, uh, as was previously mentioned, I am Oregon's 28th Secretary of State, but I am the fifth Secretary of State in the past six years. I'm gonna let that sink in. There have been 28 since statehood, and I am the fifth in the past six years. As you'll recall, due to both unexpected and tragic circumstances, uh, there was both the resignation of a governor, Kitzhopper, that obviously elevated Secretary of State Kate Brown to the position of, of governor, and then she appointed a replacement, then with the election of Secretary Richardson, and then the tragic and untimely death of Secretary Richardson while in office has led to an extraordinary amount of change in this office over the past six years. And so it is not an understatement to say that the agency itself, which is about 220 people, give or take, but it's always well over 200 folks, have been in kind of hunkered down mode for quite some time. And there hasn't been a long-term strategic vision coming out of the executive office because there's been so many changes over the past six years. My predecessor, the late Secretary Dennis Richardson, once said that being Secretary of State is like being the CEO of four completely different businesses. And he's right. I oversee seven divisions total, but four of them serve you directly as Oregonians. Those are our archives division, our audits division, our corporations division, and of course, and what is gonna occupy most of our conversation today, our elections division. And so in our opening days in office, uh, our team has been setting out to provide that really desperately needed just stability and vision for the next four years that ensures we create a broad and accessible pathway for you, for Oregonians to interact with our state government, and most importantly, to restore that trust in state institutions and in our democracy. And so quickly, I wanna kind of identify three core focus areas for our first 100 days, and those have been equity, stability, and security. When it comes to equity, we actually created a new director of diversity, equity, and inclusion right in the executive office. And after a nationwide search, we hired this agency's first ever DEI director. And we're very, very excited about her bringing that equity lens to our office, both our internal and culture and environment as, as an, an employer and as an agency, but most importantly, in our forward-facing and outward-facing work with you as Oregonians through our public service. We hired a new director of our corporations division with an expertise in business and economic equity. And we are engaging external stakeholders to build an equity advisory committee for our audits division. So that when we look at audits, when we look at core problems, we make sure that we have that equity lens and a diverse equity lens from all across the state to make sure we're asking the key questions when we're scoping out our audits. And finally, we launched an agency-wide, not just the executive team, but our whole agency, a reevaluation of our mission and vision and values 
and making sure that we place equity at the core of our work, both internally and then externally in service to you, Oregonians. Number two I mentioned is stability. As I noted earlier, five secretaries in six years, and that doesn't even count two acting secretaries during that same period and five different deputy secretaries all within six years. And so this agency is and was in need of just stability and executive leadership. So we built a diverse and experienced team in the executive office who are hard at work, really trying to rebuild trust between the kind of rank and file folks who serve in that agency and have many of them for decades and the executive office where that mission and vision is supposed to come from. And so we regularly meet with all 36 county clerks who of course are the independently elected nonpartisan folks across the, the state who actually conduct Oregon's elections. And we conducted a nationwide search for a new elections director and uh, she will be starting here in the next month. So it's been a very busy time, but our big focus has been on stabilizing this agency that has just seen an extraordinary amount of change over the past six years. And finally, security. I'm sure what probably comes to mind is something like cybersecurity. And yes, that is a top priority. I had a chance to meet personally one-on-one -on -one with former DHS director, Chris Krebs, and multiple other cybersecurity experts and teams. We hired a new director of our information services division within the agency who administers um, essentially our computer systems. And he's focused on cybersecurity. And just this week, or actually, I think it was last week, now that I'm saying it, last week, we began negotiating with the winning bidder to replace the online voter, the online central voter registration system. And that's been identified in the past as one of our biggest cyber vulnerabilities. And so we're getting, we're hitting the ground running with making sure that we that we overhaul that system so that we have secure, that your data, the database of your information is secure here in Oregon. So equity, stability, and security have been at the forefront. And underlying all of that is the central question, which is. How do we rebuild confidence in our elections following one of the most divisive elections of our lifetime? How do we restore confidence in public work and public institutions after you know, at least the last four years, if not more, of deteriorating trust in, in public institutions? And so you know, when we ask the question, what is to blame for this rapid deterioration of distrust, um, of course, misinformation and disinformation, especially spread from politicians and prominent individuals and some kind of partisan media outlets. You know, to put it bluntly, essentially an echo chamber in social media and other media outlets has just created an environment where misinformation and disinformation just seems to spread unchecked. And we need to come up with creative solutions, plural solutions, for how to combat that and arm Oregonians with the ability to stop that dead in its tracks. And so last year, our elections division, which of course was under my predecessor, Secretary Bev Clarno, hired Reed College's early voting information center to look at this exact question. Where is voter confidence and voter participation in our elections? And we released that information earlier this week. And the person who was really at the core and oversaw um, that survey is here with us today, and that's our special guest, Dr. Paul Gronke from Reed College, to talk about the top lines from that and some of the thoughts about where we go from here, which obviously is the key question. So, Dr. Gronke, what did your survey results find? Thanks. 
Uh, Secretary Fagan, it's good to see you again. As I said uh, before, I, I assume our first in-person roadshow is going to be at the Pendleton Roundup, if they're holding it. I love that. Yes, I love it, too. I've heard everyone's got it. I've heard every secretary has to go to the Roundup. I've heard that's a requirement. So uh, thanks again. And, and thank you to the City Club. Um, you know, one thing I'm going to miss from these uh, virtual gatherings is seeing the beautiful pictures of your children behind you. So um, hopefully we can meet face to face soon. Now I'm going to share with uh, uh, the viewers here uh, PowerPoint slide for a second. I'm going to speak for about 10 minutes of reviewing the results of the research that we conducted in partnership with the Division of Elections and the Secretary's Office during the last year. Um, and really play some broader context about where we are in Oregon and where we are nationally, um, wrap up with some potential solutions um, that we might think about, uh, and then hand it back to the secretary and, and really interested in hearing more of your um, questions and comments. So I'm just going to pause here for a moment here. And uh, so you should um, see that on my screen. So uh, I talk a little bit about um, this project. As I said, we, we, we began the survey project actually back in um, June of 2019 in partnership with DHM Research. We uh, set sort of a baseline of trust and confidence in the Oregon system. And then we moved forward conducting a series of surveys, one after the May primary, one in October at the beginning of the uh, fall election season. And then a pre-post survey the pre-post survey is quite valuable because it allows us to track the same respondents prior to the election and afterwards. And any changes in their responses, are, we're going to attribute to the election experience. So I want to talk a little bit, everyone really knows this, about change and innovation in this year and what went on. Um, so lots of states implemented or put in place uh, changes in their election system and uh, there was dramatic increases in vote by mail. As you see in the lower right-hand corner here, the vote by mail uh, more than doubled nationally, uh, amount of absentee voting. And I do wanna say um, the report on which states perform best, we should feel good in Oregon. Oregon was a national leader in vote by mail, of course. And uh, the Oregon director of elections at the time, Steve Trout, Secretary Clarner were on many, many calls. They were doing weekly calls along with our partners in Colorado and in Washington uh, to help inform and, and help other states think about how to best implement these systems. But there was very, very rapid change going on in 2020, as you all know. Um, unfortunately, the consequence of some of that or the outcome of this was by the fall, charges were already starting to be leveled that there were gonna be problems with the vote by mail system. And as the secretary had referred to, a lot of this was misinformation and false facts about what was going on in our system. Um, sadly, unfortunately, um, this resulted in really one of the, you know, the first time that this, uh, the US Capitol had been invaded uh, since 18, 1812. So um, this is a very important election and, and we have lots of work to do. I'm, I'm so heartened to see the secretary, hear the secretary say how important and how vital uh, she places this in, in her agenda. So what about Oregon? As we already said, Oregon was a first mover in vote by mail. We were a first mover in, in automatic voter registration. And we have been seen as a, as a real leader um, in vote by mail innovations. Um, uh, the secretary's office and the director of elections uh, attend national conferences, regional conferences all the time. And they, they talk with their colleagues and help educate their colleagues. And this education is going to continue because the expectation is that vote by mail will continue to be popular um, in other states. And historically in Oregon, we've had widespread support. And I say public and political. What I mean by that is not just the public has endorsed vote by mail, but politicians have. Um, both 
you know, unelected, you know, civil servants, uh, bureaucrats deliver elections, but really politicians on both sides of the aisle have adapted and really like vote by mail. They've adapted their campaigns with it and works really well in Oregon. That's historically uh, been the situation. So I want to start with the good news. Good news, vote by mail was resilient under the COVID-19 pandemic in a very competitive election. So we asked an Oregonians a number of times, did they have any concerns about voting due to COVID-19? Now, you may think, well, why would you ask that question? Well, because we were asking this question in other states as well. And in other states with polling place operations or early in person, there were concerns and those states had to adapt. In Oregon, we didn't. Um, I have to say as well, the, uh, the system was resilient under the, the forest fires and the terrible forest fires that we had. Many citizens actually had to come into the Salem area and those citizens were able to cast their vote by mail ballot because of the protections we have in place because of vote by mail. Okay, the less good news, the bad news. The partisan divide and evaluations of our system widened after the election. So I'm gonna show you, it's sort of a complicated table, but I, what, I, what we are showing here is Democrat and Republican evaluations of the integrity of their own ballot, of votes in Oregon generally, and votes nationwide. I'm gonna show you is that among Democrats, those that were very confident, very confident that their ballots were counted as cast, went up in the state, went up dramatically when they're evaluating the national uh, election. But Republican evaluations went down. Uh, Republicans were much more likely, 20% more likely to say that they were not confident or not at all confident, and 31% less likely to say that they were confident in the national vote count. I should say these numbers are reflective of numbers that we saw uh, throughout the country, this sort of divide between Democrats and Republicans, not just on politics, but really on the rules of the game. And this really is a point of concern. I'm sure we're gonna talk about that more uh, in the question and answer session. So we also have the same kind of divide on uh, perceptions of voter fraud. So the top part of this graphic shows uh, the frequency of fraud, perceptions of fraud, among Democrats, independents, and Republicans. This is not their registration on the uh, voter rolls, but rather their self-expressed affiliation. The degree to which they think this is occasionally or somewhat happening in the state and then nationally. Now, the good news here is that even among uh, Republicans, the expectations of the perceptions of fraud are higher nationally than they are in Oregon. Nonetheless, when you have over 60% of Republicans um, believing that they're non-citizens voting, um, or that ballots, you know, uh, uh, almost 60% are, are, think that ballots are being stolen. These are very high, and on the Democratic side, the levels are virtually none. These are important points of concern. I know it's a point of concern for the secretary and for the local clerks who are trying to engage their, their voters and let them know that, that this kind of fraud just doesn't happen um, in Oregon. And in fact, um, I know uh, this is something that the secretary is um, fond of, of citing, um, I've cited this as well. So what I'm showing you here is a screenshot from the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation has done a lot of research. Heritage is a conservative leaning um, uh, uh, research operation down in California. Um, and they have been doing research uh, collecting election fraud cases uh, going back to 2000. And that may seem like a lot of cases. You can't read this very well, but this is actually well over a decade. And if you look at each of these, and I encourage you to do this, you look at them, um, this is not widespread. Uh, these are you know, people voting twice, the errors, these are cases, but these are small. These are individuals, you know, with millions of ballots coming in to find one case of fraud. This is not, this is the level of fraud we have in Oregon, which is essentially none. You know, it's in the single digits each year. So I want to suggest some pass forward. Um, and 
some difficult paths forward um, based on our survey results and some work that I've been doing with, uh, with um, the nation, uh, with national groups. So I, I'm gonna point to something in a moment about the information environment that we're facing these days, but this reference in here to power, powerful social media companies that the secretary already referred to. So I just learned this in a gathering I had yesterday. Because of the ban on political ads in Facebook this year, state and local election officials were unable to advertise about the protections in their system. Again, let me repeat that. If you were a local election official or a state official and you had the resources to advertise on Facebook, you couldn't do it because of the ban. So there's something wrong there. We're trying to engage with these companies now, but right now local election officials are no different than anyone else in terms of the information that they convey about um, elections on social media. And there's something wrong there. And there's something wrong because we've got these differences between the way older people and younger people in part are consuming information. So we asked Oregonians about what, where they got their political information. For older voters, it was primarily what we'd say traditional sources, television news, the voters pamphlet, newspaper. But for younger voters, younger generations, it's a much more diverse landscape of information. Social media, search engines, they talk to peers. So when the secretary is thinking about engaging and trying to counter misinformation, she's going to end her office and her communication staff and the local officials are gonna to have to wrestle with this kind of complexity and this kind of environment that we're dealing with out there these days. Okay, second thing we could do for a path forward is, is find trusted validators. What I mean by trusted validators here are the state and local election officials who are really the experts about local elections and then smart and informed journalists. Um, example, on national level is Pam Fessler who writes very uh, effective and understands election administration. Unfortunately, a lot of journalists don't understand it very well. They go for the quick story, the fast lead. You know, it's sort of boring to say, hey, there's no fraud. That's a boring story, but it's a story we need to get out there. Um, so I want to highlight some work that we're doing at EVIC and at Reed College. Uh, we have a national effort underway to try to elevate and um, amplify the voices of local election officials, um, evaluate their career trajectories, um, the, the compensation they get, and really make sure that this community, which went through a very, very difficult and rough year, is supported and sustained down the road. I'm happy to talk with more of you about that. You're going to be hearing more about that sort of public releases over the next two or three months. Okay, last thing I wanna to point to is the use of transparency and technology. Transparency is incredibly important and how can we use technology? And so I just wanna to point to one example here. We asked early on in our surveys about election audits. Post-election audits are a, a, a level of transparency, but the problem is over a third of Oregonians don't know that our audits occur and they're not really sure how they occur. So this is just one opportunity that the secretary, the kind of message and information that we're providing to the secretary's office say, hey, here's a place where we could potentially have some outreach. We can engage journalists, engage citizens, let them know that these protections are there. Okay, so again, I wanna thank the Secretary of State, the Division of Elections, and of course, Salem City Club. Any questions, um, you could, are welcome to email me and then the, we have more information at the project page if you want to dig down deep and, and look at all the cross tabs. Yes. Okay, thank you, Matt. Yeah, well, fine. yeah, thank you, Dr. Gronke. And I love that you mentioned transparency. And I always, uh, one thing that came in last or like earlier this year, which is a great little video by a Girl Scout troop in Wasco County that just said, wow, here's the anatomy of a ballot. They worked with the Wasco County clerk, uh, who's the, the mother of one of these Girl Scouts works in the clerk's office and they just did kind of a cool little YouTube video of the anatomy of a ballot but just something as simple as that is showing there's a chain of custody from the way that a ballot is cast there's a unique barcode tracking so the idea that somebody could 
you know, cast more than one ballot, the system would kick it out. Every voter, you have a unique barcode. I have a unique barcode. We only get a vote once per election. And so really telling people some of those safeguards, I think sometimes empowers them to be skeptical about that misinformation. And I really appreciate you mentioning that Heritage Foundation survey, which I'm sure you've heard me mention a number of times, because it was, you know, 15 million ballots and they found 14 instances of voter fraud, which is literally less than one in a million over the course of 20 years. And I always liken that to if folks drink coffee, uh, and I'm sure there's some Salem City Club members that drink coffee, that vote by mail is literally safer than drinking coffee because when the FDA approves coffee beans, they allow up to 1% of coffee beans to have a little mold or insect body parts in them. Uh, but we still enjoy our coffee and we know it's safe. That's even, that's exponentially more voter fraud than is in the system as is bugs and insect parts in our coffee beans. And so we just need to continue to get that message out. And I love that you talked about getting it out in a way that's interesting because it isn't a great headline to say, you know, it isn't a clickbait headline to say no voter fraud found but maybe there are creative ways that we can get that message out that helps tell that story and it makes it sticky for people. And I know that we've spoken before and done presentations and you know that civic education is a big focus of our office. And I'm wondering if, you know, based on your survey results, if there's a certain kind of maybe certain groups that should be, you know, you know information given to them or kind of how civic education can really play into this effort. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Um, I, you know, the bug parts might be flavoring. So <laughs> now I, you know, some high elected official in the state of Oregon might have described my Twitter feed as snarky. I'm trying to remember who that might be. And I will say that um, when I did get a little snarky at the end of the um, election season last year, I, I got, um, not surprisingly, I was a resource for a number of national reporters to do uh, fact checking on uh, how vote by mail and vote by mail ballots, uh, uh, absentee ballots were being used. And I think it was the third or fourth time when I was um, asked about the counterfeit ballots from China, I started to just lose my patience. And I walked through, as you did, uh, uh, Secretary Fagan, the sort of steps that a ballot has to travel through. And I walked the reporter through, I said, I know you're gonna be bored with me and I'm not gonna get quoted. But after the fifth or sixth step, I said, okay, you've gone through all those steps and guess what? You've just counterfeited one ballot. You, I said, this is, I don't care that it was Attorney General William Barr that was saying this, this is not true. And please stop calling me about this fact check. So what can we do? Absolutely. Um, I will say um, that there are, along with the national efforts to try to address misinformation and, and understand that at the national and the local level, um, there are some incredibly forward-looking um, efforts on uh, changing and revolutionizing and promoting civics education. Um, Danielle Allen, who is at Harvard, um, political scientists and others have worked and there's a whole new initiative on civics education. Um, and I really encourage the Salem um, City Club members and others to look at that. One of the things they're doing is trying to reach out at the high school level and, and make civics education less about sort of, um, you know, uh, learning the basics of American government, but more learning about how politics works and understand that disagreement doesn't mean dislike, that we can have healthy disagreement, but we don't need to dislike. Um, where we are right now in the United States, it's challenging is that it's gone from disagreeing with someone to really disliking someone. And, and that's a big problem. And so I think we need to start at the elementary and high school level. I'm very encouraged to hear you talk about this many, many times. Um, you know, I'm sure the next part of our roadshow might not be in Pendleton, it's going to be at a high school somewhere, but really 
that would be a good thing. And for students to understand, um, I don't want to put policy proposals on you, um, but there are some states that have done pre-registration as a way to get people, to, as um, high school students, to sort of think about engaging the system early. So that's important. And the other thing that I've mentioned to you um, that I attribute to um, Noah Pretz, who is an election official from Cook County, uh, Illinois, who then worked for CISA, which is the Division of the Department of Homeland Security, that was reaching out so um, um, they were reaching out to local and state officials this um, year, last year, excuse me, to try to counter some of the misinformation. Um, you know, what Noah said was, look, for an election official, the group that you really want to engage in your community is the minority party, the, because that's those are your allies. Um, the folks that, you know, because these are where the, the disgruntlement is going to occur. So you want transparency with everyone in your community, of course, but you might want special outreach um, to the minority party, because those are the individuals who really can be your allies and potentially counter some of that misinformation. Well, that's exactly, uh, that's a great point. And, and Jan and Sharon probably are, uh, want to let folks know that they can ask questions. So we're happy to take some questions. I'll ask Dr. Gronke one more question while Jan and Sharon are gathering the questions from you, from the city club members. But if it is exactly to your point, I'm, you know, I am a I, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm registered as a Democrat. I was elected as, you know, a, a Democratic Secretary of State, but my duties and my job is nonpartisan. I also recognize that I am still a Democrat and that I'm not the best messenger for some people, particularly how your survey showed a really sharp partisan divide. I was really alarmed that before the election, a little over half of even Republicans in Oregon you know, had confidence in the election, but then after the election, over half of Republicans in Oregon that you surveyed did not have confidence that every vote was accurately counted in Oregon. And that's very distressing to me. I mean, I grew up in rural Oregon. A lot of my friends and family uh, are Republican and, and I want folks to have that confidence. We can have those, those debates about policy, but the best way to move Oregon forward and accept the outcome of elections, even when we don't like them. And so I'm not the best messenger to all these folks, particularly folks that are, are really worried about misinformation and disinformation. And you mentioned you know, me partnering with some of my former colleagues in the Senate and the House, uh, Republican colleagues to really help spread those messages. You mentioned county clerks. I mean, who else do you see um, in addition to those as just kind of credible messengers that might reach some of the folks in your survey that, that where it showed that really amongst those communities is where we're having a hard time with that misinformation. Well, let's talk about the hard challenge first, uh, Secretary Fagan, and that I, I made brief reference to the social media companies and their influence. Um, so some of it is gonna require reaching out of state. Um, and I suspect you and I are gonna begin to overlap in some of these gatherings. Um, the event I was referring to where I was yesterday was actually um, in California. The California Voter Foundation is doing some work and, um, and they sort of stumbled upon this observation about the advertising and, you know, everyone in the room, the virtual room was sort of shocked. Um, no one realized that there were attempts to engage with Google um, and with Facebook didn't get very far. So part of it is to put pressure on some of those companies where so much of the information is coming there. Um, get that little label on the Twitter tags for local election officials and use them so that they could be more trusted validators. Um, from, for your own part, I think um, you're going to overlap with Secretary Wyman soon, I'm sure. Secretary Kim Wyman is very widely respected in the elections community, both regionally and nationally. Um, she is a Republican in Washington, which is a state that leans Democratic. Um, and, you know, um, Kim, Secretary Wyman, I've spoken to many times, and um, she's navigated that, I think, well. 
Um, but part of it is building your staff. But who else, you know, scholars like myself, I think, or academics, you know, other people with voices, I think community organizations are, um, you know, some of these are going to skew older. So my dad, Edward Gronke, who's been involved in civic affairs in this area for a long time, he works through Rotary and he always talks about Rotary. I'm like, Rotary? But in fact, Rotary is a really wide impact. You know, I think the challenge secretary is going to be uh, the younger generations where there's more mobility and there's less connection to some of the traditional organizations. So frankly, some of the um, uh, social action movements right now, um, there's been a lot of work in areas nationally and regionally on Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and so there are connections at that. Um, that's really a social movement now that has a lot of impact. And you kind of get them on board, understanding that kind of elective, it, you know, protest has a role, but so do elections. Um, and can we kind of bring in those generations in to the elective process, I think is going to be really very important. has to happen to everybody one uh, one cycle. So that was my time speaking on mute. If anybody has a, on their bingo card, you can go ahead and mo uh, mark off. Fagan sort of talking while being on mute. Cindy, uh, do you have some questions for us from your members? Well, I'm sure our members have questions. Thank you very much, Secretary Fagan and Dr. Grunke for providing such important information to us this afternoon. And now I'm sure we do have people who are chomping at the bit to ask some questions, but before we get started, um, a quick review for asking questions. All registered attendees logged in on a computer or other device have a raise hand icon or button on your screen. If you have a question to ask of the secretary or Dr. Gronke, please click on the button to raise your hand. People will be called on as the time permits. Your microphone will be activated when called on, but you must click on your own microphone icon on your screen to be heard. Uh, time is short, so please be quick with your question. You may also write a question in using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, and it will be read if time permits. If you are joining us by telephone, please press star nine to raise and lower your hand and star six to mute or unmute your phone. So now let's get started. And Russ or Delana Beaton have the first question. Here we go. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Um, I'd like to speak to the issue that, uh, well, it seems like if you win the election, you think it was fair. And if you lose the election, you don't. Um, however, uh, even though in a, a lot of the, uh, the suspicions seem to hinge on the national results, it's true that the state and local Republican results were pretty good. Uh, and, and the results that you believe and the result that you don't are on the same ballot. Yeah. Is, is there any way in a research sense of getting at this little, this little quandary? Well, you know, I'll start and, and let the secretary, because um, she really has to deal with this, not me. I could just speculate about it. You're right. Uh, we, uh, in the research field, we call that the winner's effect. Um, that is, if you won the election, you tend to, uh, uh, give higher levels of legitimacy and acceptance. Um, what is different in, and I can um, point you some data on this, I'll try to put it in the Q&A section. Uh, the gaps this year are a lot larger. That just, there's just no doubting that, that the gaps were much smaller. So while you're right, there, it's def, it, it has been the case traditionally that if you won the election, you tend to be more positive and evaluate it more. The other thing is the gaps, um, we hadn't seen it, and, and the secretary referred to this, um, at the, your own vote, 
that is, your own vote has traditionally been influenced mainly by your voting experience. If you had a good experience, poll worker experience of voting by mail, um, the national one, yes, moves more in response to the national result. But this year really has been the the movements. I'll put something in the uh, in the chat window. But the, the this year is very very different. Um, and you are right; it was primarily, as far as we know at this point, driven by messaging um, that was coming out of the national. Um, so how you get that information to your locals, Secretary, I don't know if you have a, a, a thought about that. I did pay very close attention to um, your campaign, um, and it was a, a, what's the right word? It was a good campaign. I mean, not your campaign. You campaigned with you and your opponent. I thought the right issues were being talked about. Um, it wasn't mean-spirited, um, which I think is good. Um, uh, Kim Thatcher, that was your opponent, I believe, right? So, yeah, more campaigns like that. You know, you can disagree, but not dislike one another, I think. No, absolutely. And and Russ, your your question really, I think, is as well articulated because it just it obviously shows this is not a logical conclusion people are coming to, right? This is not like an they're doing analysis and saying, Oh yeah, my my Republican member of the county commission and the state legislature and the city council who all got reelected, those elections were fine. It was just my one presidential ballot. It doesn't actually make sense, which I think underscores the fact what a few of the more academic articles that I've read about this show, this really is actually a psychological, emotional phenomenon. It is not like an actual logical phenomenon to assume that these, you know, there was massive fraud. It's an emotional and a psychological uh, need of folks to, to believe that they're being heard to not believe that they're being duped. And I think it's really important. And, and so I, I appreciate what Dr. Gronke said about the research part of it, because the place that I think we have to start with and come from is a place of empathy. I think it is very scary for people who are targets of misinformation to, who maybe think that their vote wasn't counted or have that visceral reaction to the fear. You know, I sent a couple of text messages on the, you know, the election once uh, President Biden was declared the winner I have a few folks that I've known my whole life growing up, grew up with him in church that are on the very different end of the political spectrum as me. But I just got a couple of text messages out to people saying something to the effect of, you know what, I'm thinking of you today. I was in your shoes four years ago, not getting the result that I wanted. And I know it's a hard day. I hope you take care of yourself today. Just reaching out, not having to say, you know, anything about political ideology to say, hey, I see you. I know today hurts. I know this didn't turn out the way that you wanted to. And I want you to know that I care about you. And I know what it feels like, because that's where I felt. That's how I felt four years ago. And so I think that coming from that place of empathy and recognizing that the people who are targets of the misinformation and who are maybe uh, recklessly or unintentionally sharing the misinformation are not the folks often creating the disinformation. Right, disinformation being kind of intentional and misinformation maybe being not as intentional. And so I think that for us, from our office, we're going to come from a place of empathy, recognizing that if it's not a logical, if it's not a logical question, the question, the answer isn't just logical information peppered at people. It is recognizing the fact that they ultimately want to have trust in their institutions and trust in their state government that will admit mistakes when we make mistakes, when we do discover mistakes. And not, I'm not talking about elections, I'm talking about in general, uh, when there's information. I think that, for example, in public health, right, that there were uh, issues, uh, you know, small statistical issues, but there were issues with the Johnson Johnson vaccine, uh, for example. So there was a big, they, they paused, they shared that information. They didn't, that, I believe that actually feeds transparency to show us if we catch things, we're actually going to tell you about them. So if we're not telling you about them, 
you can believe that we haven't caught these problems. I think just approaching with empathy and realizing it's actually a psychological phenomenon, not necessarily one that's going to be combated with simply logic and, and um, you know, well laid out facts. Thank you both for that. And there was a question um, on the Q&A, written on the Q&A or a request that was, please provide um, the studies in an email from the Heritage Foundation. And Dr. Gronke did respond. And that web address is www.heritage.org forward slash voter fraud. So, and we'll, we'll hopefully maybe have that on the website um, um, after this program. So, and now we'll go to a question for E.M. Easterly. Uh, how do you engage the minority party that do, does not trust your word as a member of the majority party? And I think you, you answered some of this uh, just previously, but if there's anything to add um, on that. Well, I'll just again share that the, the folks, I mean, I served in the House, I served in the Senate, we have a lot of great relationships. Senator Bill Kenimer uh, is a good colleague of mine. When we worked together in the House and he got appointed to the Senate within a couple of weeks of me becoming secretary. And his request was, hey, will you come swear me in? Come to my house, come swear me in. Uh, he could have asked anybody. And he asked me to do it. So of course I made that time to go to his beautiful home in Canby and swear him in. There's real relationship there, uh, having served in the House and the Senate. And I intend to reach out to those folks. Uh, right now they're a little busy with a legislative session. So we're, you know, and we're obviously busy with our legislative session and getting our budget passed. But those are absolute priorities of mine to reach out and say, hey, you know, let's do an event together in your county when it's safe to do so and talk about these issues and confirm for them that you as a Republican in, you know, Crook County were, were elected uh, with a secure and correct and accurate ballot. And so what, and also ask people, what do you need to know? Kind of the Neil deGrasse Tyson approach, right? What needs, what do you need to know to, to you know, to believe this or what, what do you need to know to, to stop believing this thing? You know, what would you need to be true? Or what do you need to see to stop believing this thing that isn't true? And I think that that's important. And the good news is there are a lot of relationships there. Right. I've been in the legislature for, for three different full uh, cycles or sessions is there are relationships there. And I intend to uh, very much for their own benefit and for their constituents relationships benefit um, I intend to use those relationships to just help Oregonians reestablish that confidence. Yeah, and I think transparency is also really important here. Um, you know, I have uh, every election, you know, Tim Scott rolls his eyes. Tim Scott is the director of elections in Multnomah County, rolls his eyes because I, I go on another tour of his facility. Um, there are opportunities for you to uh, get information while the election is going on after the election, both at the uh, the divisional elections website and at your county websites. Um, I've, I, I have not encountered a local official yet who is not, not just willing to talk, but wants to talk. Um, so, you know, uh, I guess what I will say is you don't need to trust their word, trust their actions and trust the data and the information they provide to you. And, and that's gonna show you that their word can be trusted. Thank you. And now the next question is from Neil Pearson. Do you have statistics on attempted hacks of Oregon election systems, local or state elections? I'm sure we do. I don't have those on the top of my head. We had a recent report that our, our new information services director attended and, and the, 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 the word he came back when he presented to our team was there are always attempts, whether it's elections, whether it's on our corporations division where folks credit card information is from registering their business, there are always attempted hacks. There were no successful hacks, um, but it's a constant. Uh, the, the, 
the audit we just performed at the treasurer's office was about you know their system and actually they're doing a very good job our audit revealed that they're doing a very good job but there are always where there is information that is important there are always people attempting to hack that uh, what's important is that we recognize that and that we are constantly keeping one step ahead of them so I'm happy to follow up Cindy with you um, from our information services director and get you that report that he attended um, which was from CISA, um, as uh, Dr. Gronke mentioned, from the Department of Homeland Security that talked about it nationwide. Uh, but certainly his, his thing was, yeah, they're always trying. Um, they have not been successful. The real issue, issue was, not, was not hacking this last election, of course, which was just spreading disinformation. As I've said uh, many times, and it, it just holds true, it is a lot harder to actually hack an election then you just convince people that somebody hacked an election. <laughs> that just requires misinformation, disinformation. That's much harder than actually doing it. Yeah, I don't wanna shake my head and have it fly right off my shoulder, Secretary, but that is exactly right. Uh, again, if you go to your local office, you can see this, it's so important for everyone to understand election machines that, that, think, that count the ballots, these are not connected to the internet. They are firewalled off. Um, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, if, you know, if you see a hackathon in Las Vegas, right, folks don't have an hour and screwdrivers and everything to get into. I've seen those machines, they have special secure things for the USB ports. So, so these machines are, and, and Amber McReynolds, some of you may recognize the name, not, you should look her up. She's a star, she's a rising star, a star, um, but she's just been uh, approved. She had her committee hearing um, in front of the U.S. Senate to be appointed to the U.S. Postal Service Board. She's the executive director of the Vote at Home Foundation. I mean, Amber's made this point many, many times that in Oregon and other Vote at Home systems, we have a paper record. We have a paper record, so you can't really hack our system. Uh, uh, the secretary is right. Attempts are being made all the time, um, but you know, the, the, there aren't hacks. You, you just, you can't get into those machines. Great, and if you can provide that information on the numbers, that'd be great. And there was a follow-up, uh, what are the sources? And so if you could provide that, that'd be terrific. And now um, another question from Ron Ekus. What are the equity issues you are discovering when it comes to ballot access and voter participation? Oh, well, first off, thank you for asking this. Such an important part of the conversation. Uh, one that we've been working with Rep. Fam on this session is, is around language, um, is around the folks that, you know, there's many different languages spoken in Oregon. These are folks who are um, plugged into their communities, but, but having to read elections materials and, you know, both the candidate statements and also the ballots themselves, or particularly ballot measures in, in Oregon, obviously, we have ballot measures and city charter amendments and all of that. To have to read those in a language in which you're not fluent is extraordinarily difficult. And so we're working with Rep. Con Pham's office to, to support her efforts around uh, about language access with ballots. So that's one of the key issues um, that we see. And I think there are still, um, you know, there's still concerns around, um, you know, ballot access for folks who are uh, who are currently incarcerated. That's an issue uh, that that Oregon has tackled. There's an organization. Unfortunately, their bill did not move forward this session, but it is something that there's some efforts that are being made around folks who are incarcerated having an opportunity. And we know there's an you know over incarceration of particularly black and brown men in our criminal justice system. So that's an issue that a, a civil rights group has decided to tackle. Um, we do a really good job here in Oregon. The fact that we have automatic voter registration. Um, that we do that to the DMV. There's actually an effort this session that we support to also expand that to Department of Revenue and to the Oregon Health Plan. 
to capture about that other five to 7% of folks that are maybe not interacting with the DMV. And I think uh, particularly with our younger generation coming up, as Dr. Gronke mentioned, that they're just harder to reach in a lot of ways. Well, they're not, they're, they're the Uber Lyft generation. I'm not sure, you know, how important it is for them to get that first driver's license that I remember getting uh, after failing the driven test because I ran a yellow light. Um, because my dad had always told me yellow means beat the red. Uh, that's not the answer, the correct response on a driver test. Uh, but but yeah, eager to get that driver's license. There's there's a whole new generation of, of kids that have probably been shuttling around in a Lyft or an Uber since they were 14 or 15. Um, and so obviously having a new way to reach them, Department of Reg Revenue or Oregon Health Plan to make sure that they become automatically registered when they're 18 as well. Okay, thank you very much for that. And now George Dyer has a question. So George, if you can unmute your mic. George? There. There. Okay, very good. Now, I, I'm a former social studies teacher and in Salem, we used to have, uh, you know, voting machines. And we would have candidates fairs where candidates would come in, talk to the students, they would go down to the gym where the elections officials set up a voting uh, a place and the students would vote on the voting machines. So they were actively involved in the process. And then we'd have students go down to the elections division in Marion County and uh, uh, they would watch how they took those sample ballots and put them in the machines to see how it worked. Now, how do we do that and get students involved in this day and age with electronics, with Zooms, with all of these uh, social media? Uh, we need to do that because in a sense, we're taking some of the participation of our democracy away from people. Uh, 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 it, you know, you used to go down to your uh, uh, polling uh, place and you would meet all sorts of people there. And it was a social thing too. We don't do that anymore. So how do we get people involved more in the voting and, and in elections? And by the way, I'm a graduate of the Dallas High School. So nice to see you. <laughs> EDHS forever, George. That's exciting. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And I see a, maybe a TikTok video, you and me in our future. Uh, uh, dancing and showing folks how that election works. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that's transparency. That's part of the reason I love that that video that the Girl Scouts did. They kind of did that. They just did it on video and then put it out in YouTube. But essentially these, you know, innocent Girl Scouts out in Wasco County walking folks through this. And, and I'm happy to, I know that my, um, my uh, press secretary, Erin Fiedler is on this call. And so we can share that information, that video with you as well. Just a really cool, it's about five or seven minutes, but it just walks folks through that exact process. And and I know that, you know, talking to civic or organizations and student organizations in my first 100 days, I couldn't be exact, but I probably spoken already to half a dozen, you know, civics this and junior government this. And we've inaugurated a kid governor here in Oregon. And so engaging those students is really important. And I think one of the benefits of vote by mail is you have a generation of kids growing up, hopefully, watching their parents get their ballot in the mail. Like my kids are eight and four and they know when the ballot comes and they sit and watch me and you know, they recognize usually some names on the ballot and we talk through um, you know, those folks. And I made a video actually during the election of voting with my kids um, because it was just really fun. And so they will have that experience through our family 
uh, and hopefully many other kitchen tables across Oregon of watching their parents vote year after year and going and dropping that in the Dropbox with their parents as my kids did this election cycle and, and really bringing that experience into the home as well. Uh, but I, I'm up for any and all of those ideas. Again, it, it gets to Dr. Gronke's point about transparency, it's civic education. And I would venture to guess that more than just students would benefit from that, everybody would benefit because that's not even necessarily the biggest source of misinformation right now. Uh, when we talk about civic education in our office, we wanna continue the work we're doing with elementary and middle and high school students and expand beyond to everybody. Because the reality is I'm more likely to get a text message from my aunt with an accidentally sharing me misinformation because she doesn't realize it's, you know, a, a fake version of the Washington Post or a, a more, a less credible news source than I am from my middle school niece who's kind of grown up in the digital age. So I think everybody needs um, to have an opportunity to see that correct information uh, for themselves. Okay, and we have time for one last question. And this one is from Sean Mikas and it's to you. Secretary Fagan, how do you see the potential new laws for electronic notary signatures, perhaps streamlining corporate filings and or making corporate filings safer um, make, for people um, to prevent people from uh, corporate fraud, from committing corporate fraud? Well, thank you for mentioning this. This is something that I want to give credit where credit is due. My predecessor, Secretary Clarno, actually rolled out our online notary system. Um, and I, I mean, you know, it was already obviously in the works with legislation that had been passed, but boy, it could not have come at a better time that it was essentially rolled out uh, in the middle of this pandemic when obviously businesses from all over the state um, needed to be able to, to get those notary services. I, I'm a, as a former lawyer, I definitely, uh, notary services were very important, um, but just like with any system, uh, as we're talking about the, the, the previous question about how often do people attempt hacks, anytime that we're holding information, whether it's people's signatures or any other form of information, we have to then be making sure that we're one step ahead um, in our cyber cybersecurity, because that's another place where we're now holding more information of Oregonians um, through the fact that we now have an online votary, voter, notary system. And as I mentioned, we hired a new information services director uh, with a strong, in fact, he's from the treasurer's office who just had a very strong audit about their system. And he's now in the secretary of state's office running our information services division. And we have very high hopes for him. His name is Chris Mullen. Um, with respect to making sure that we stay one step ahead of the hackers. Yeah, I did that online notarization this year one time, Secretary, twice perhaps during legal. Uh, I liked it. It was great. <laughs> it worked really well. This person comes up on the screen. And so, um, yeah, congratulations for that system. It worked well for me. Tried and true. So I'm going to get try and get in one last question. Um, looking ahead, do you believe it would be better if the sensitive functions, functions of elections and audits were supervised by a nonpartisan official rather than a partisan politician and why or why not and I know you could speak an hour on this but you've got about a minute no I think it's quick I mean it always should be supervised with somebody who's going to do the work in a nonpartisan way uh, I mean in the end you know even the positions in Oregon for example all of Portland City Council are nonpartisan positions but it's usually Democrats that win those seats and so I don't know that it would make that much of a difference in Oregon somebody's going to be elected in, in Oregon, obviously folks are gonna ask, you know, what are their, you know, what are their political views? What are their political ideologies? And so I don't know that it would make that much of a difference. I think what's most important is that whoever is in that job, uh, my predecessor, Secretary Richardson, who was a Republican and, and me, I mean, we have the same audits director. I didn't, you know, he, he hired Kip Memmott as audits director. I looked at his body of work, I asked him to stay. And so I think what's most important is whoever holds this job is accountable to Oregonians. 
and then and then does the work in a nonpartisan fashion. Well, great. Well, again, thank you both for such a great presentation of the issues involved that the Secretary of State is involved in. And in, in the end, we all are. So thank you. Oh, Russ, your microphone is on. So um, with that, we're, our time is up and we'll have to turn it back to Sharon to close the meeting. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Uh, both Secretary Fagan and Dr. Gronke. That was a, a wonderfully informative program. Uh, remember that we have only one more program this year. Our last program will be on May 14th. We'll hear a panel of local journalists talk about what went on at the state capitol this session. We hope you'll join us. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more details and to register. Thank you very much for attending today. Good day.